out. Um, we'll go ahead and uh, dive in. Anyone have any thoughts or notes from uh, from yesterday? Uh, let me do the intro first. I probably should do that first. Ugh, sorry, I was up all night working, so my brain is not in a great place. But uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to the the Losing Watery Quarantine Collective's ongoing reading of Anti Oedipus. Extremely excited to be here today, as you can tell from how excited my voice is. But we are diving a little bit further into 4.5, final section, final chapter of Anti Oedipus. Uh, we're in the middle of page 345, I believe, at Libidinal Investment. Is that where we left it off, everyone? Okay. Um, any thoughts on the earlier section of the reading yesterday? Any Anyone come away and have a amazing moment last night? Uh, apart from a damn fine cup of a uh, cup of tea, uh, not exactly. <laughs> That's fair. Well, well, but blood, Roger. Oh, and I was just about to say one of the the advocacy uh, protests that we've done this summer that engaged the government into transforming the condition, uh, the living condition of disabled people. Uh, came to an abrupt um, negative <laughs> response on the part of the government last night. So it's kind of weird today, like everything is going on and everything is uh, trying to get back into gear to contest this stuff, but we don't know what's up yet. Sorry to hear that. It's uh, one of those things that uh, we're, we're living in a place right now where a lot of people are on that fascistic side. And even you guys in Canada, we used to laugh about you guys being the crazy lefties. And then uh, you proved us wrong. So good, I guess, good job there. Yeah, on this is more like a legalist perspective because, you know, everything is planned according to the law and the law reigns supreme. And then, you know, they're, not, they're like, oh, no, we're not going to change the normal way of affairs. Well, with that, I think I'm going to go ahead and actually just uh, dive in and see what I can uh, get through in the next two hours and see how far we can get in. Any last things? Yeah, before we dive right back in, since we're picking up on the second thesis, can we just briefly go over the first thesis and um, what they're arguing now in terms of the second thesis? Sure. I don't know. All right, let's continue. <laughs> um, so the, I think the first thesis, as I was reading it, is that they really... Uh, they don't want us necessarily to spend time and fighting through uh, the idea of there being uh, two sides of the coin, the molar and the molecular investments. They want us to get away from that. And the very specifics, uh, the specifics around this thesis uh, that they're pushing us into is within social investments, we need to distinguish unconscious libidinal investments uh, of the group or desire, and the pre-conscious investment of class or interest. The latter passes by way of the large social goals and concerns the organism and collective organs, uh, including arranged vacuoles of lack. Basically, uh, we're it's what we're learning about right now, but it's the idea of how to break down social machines, find the desiring machines, and see where things are privileged within them. Yeah, yeah, I think you're definitely, that's a wonderful um point into that right like to expand your point about the molar and molecular right so like they, they write the first thesis the schizoanalysis is this 
I'm sorry, the first thesis of schizoanalysis is this. Each investment is social and in any case bears upon a socio-historical field, right? So whether we're talking about the molar molecular to your point, the, the social and socio-historic um, fields and investments are going to be present, right? So, if, you know, the, the whether it's like cleaning up milk or whatever, right? There's a way in which that is still connected to the social field and that desiring production, social production, despite the regimes, are still related to the social investments. And I think you're off to a great start in the second thesis about the unconscious libidinal investments. All right. Well, it's time for us then to dive into uh, libidinal investments. Libidinal investment does not bear upon the regime of the social syntheses, but upon the degree of development of the forces or the energies on which these syntheses depend. It does not bear upon the selections, detachments, and remainders affected by these syntheses, but upon the nature of the codes and the flows that condition them. <clears throat> it does not bear upon the social means and ends, but upon the full body as, the so as socius, the formation of sovereignty, or the form of power for itself, devoid of meaning and purpose, since the meanings and the purposes derive from it, <clears throat> and not the contrary. It is doubtless true that interests predispose us to a given libidinal investment, but they are not identical with this investment. Moreover, the unconscious libidinal investment is what causes us to look for our interest in one place rather than another, to fix our aims on a given path, convinced that this is where our chances lie, since love drives us on. The manifest syntheses are merely the preconscious indicators of a degree of development. The apparent interests and aims are merely the preconscious exponents of a social full body. As Klosowski says in his profound commentary on Nietzsche, a form of power is identical with the violence it exerts by its very absurdity. But it can exert this violence only by assigning itself aims and meanings in which even the most enslaved elements participate. To quote, The sovereign formations will have no other purpose than that of masking the absence of a purpose or a meaning of their sovereignty by means of the organic purpose of their creation. End quote and the purpose of thereby converting the absurdity into spirituality. That is why it is so futile to attempt to distinguish what is rational and what is irrational in a society. To be sure, the role, the place, and the part has one in society, and from which one inherits, in terms of the laws of social reproduction, impel the libido to invest a given socius as a full body, a given absurd power, in which we participate, or have the chance to participate, under the cover of aims and interests. The fact remains that there exists a, exists a disinterested love of the social machine, of the form of power, and of the degree of development in and for themselves. Even in the person who has an interest, and loves them besides with a form of love other than that of his interest, this is also the case for the person who has no interest and who substitutes the force of a strange love for this counter-investment. Flows that run on the porous, full body of a socius, these are the object of desire, higher than all the aims. It will never flow too much, it will never break or code enough, and in that very way, oh, how beautiful the machine is. The officer of In the Penal Colony demonstrates what an intense libidinal investment of a machine can be. A machine that is not only technical, but social, 
and through which desire desires its own repression. Uh, that last reference, of course, Kafka's In the Penal Colony. If you're unfamiliar, short version, uh, in this crazy world, uh, people are executed by this machine that uh, gives them a miraculous, godly experience upon death. Uh, so it's kind of sort of not a punishment when they kill them. <laughs> and then uh, the, the machine is made illegal, and the man running the machine, the officer who's in charge of the executions, uh, says how ridiculous that is, and with debatable, the whole point is to debate the motives, decides to get in it himself and uh, prove, and it doesn't give him the enjoyment that everyone else seemed to feel. <laughs> so, dies in a horrible, horrible, fouringly painful way if memory serves. And we find an equivalent in the movie Soylent Green, where the elderly people in a dystopian society are being brought to death, living some kind of illusion or fantasy, and then they make food out of their bodies. I, could we also argue the same of Facebook? <laughs> also. <laughs> but that's the thing. It's, a, it's a, the mechanism that is at the, uh, the base of the, the liberal society or a liberal economy. Well, and and I, I use it as a semi-joke because... Uh, it is one of those things uh, that flows run on the porous full body of the socius. It will never flow too much. It will never break or code enough. And in that very way, oh, how beautiful a machine it is. The, the love of the machine that is not only technical but social and through which desire desires its own repression is literally social media. So um, let's go back a little bit and break down some of the things they're talking about in here because this is where we're we're now uh, starting to play with things that aren't, uh, how to put it, uh, quite as clean as the first uh, handful of the first task of schizophrenia, which is ultimately about breaking down molar and uh, understanding molecular. We're now talking about the actual energy that flows in there, the libidinal investment, the, the love, which they use throughout here. And I'd love if, I, yeah, I need to work on need better yeah. words. <laughs> Okay, I would make a general statement on this because uh, I was I was going into the same manner. Uh, into this paragraph, we need to uh, see the change of tone. How you know they're talking about the rational, the irrational, and then they bring out the intention and love. So there's a clear divide here between you know what we consider in modernity to be the modern subject, the rational subject that uses his intellect to you know. Uh, identify the it, its its desires, its its needs, and you know have aims, and you know come from intention to uh, realization, and they they start talking about love. You know they slowly move to affect, and saying that you know it's a uh, we do things out of affects and not of out of intentions. Um, it's worth asking if anyone's familiar. Do they actually at any point? I, I don't believe so, but do they define love in any meaningful capacity uh, here? Is it in the French text? Is it love or is there another word they use? Uh, I was in the English text with you. Just give me one sec. In the German text? I just, I'm very, uh, the use of love here, I think, has very specific 
intentionality in uh, English, and it's one of the reasons that a lot of, at least in my experience, a lot of philosophical texts, when they use love, it can be Greek, it can be a lot of different things, but in English, it doesn't, English, it means literally like a thousand things. I love pancakes, I love my wife, I love my son. Those are not the same thing. I mean, I really like pancakes, but they're not the same thing. Clearly pancakes take the cake. <laughs> now we're talking about love, like amour in French. And it's, uh, it's the, the, the word we use for to define real love. Yeah, a passionate, romantic love almost. Well, that's, so that's it's like a it's like a amour is like an irrational thing you know you're it's a drive you're being driven to do something without the rational thinking part of it so it, it really goes into the thesis of affects predetermining everything else well, and, it, and it plays into their earlier talk essentially of what libido is and taking it from being this weird purely sexual uh, drive which it is in sort of early Freud to much more of a uh, passion-filled desire sort of fluid <laughs> not to make it say that it's come but we're talking in that direction it's it's an uncontrollable burst of passions is the, is the intention it's, with it's, libido it, it's muddy you know it's something yeah. that is slippery we get stuck in it you know it affects everything and let's 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 take mud <laughs> something pretty like Immoral. Uh, yeah, that works. It's a better three-letter word for it that has you in the middle. Um, but it's it's one of those things that ultimately what they're talking about here is that um, that desire is not necessarily invested in any specific object or objective, but it's uh, a degree of a thing. Um, love impels us in this direction. The manifest syntheses are merely the pre-conscious indicators of a degree of development of this love. The apparent interest and aims are merely the pre-conscious exponents of a social full body. The, the, the degree of, like, the, there's a degree of, I don't want to say intensity because they have that language used elsewhere, not in this way, but it is in that direction that it's, it's about sort of a, a level of intensity. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. A quick thought again on this. Uh, something I never taught before, but rationality is not something that be calculated in intensity. Rationality is or is not. But love and power, it's a matter of intensity. So I think it's a, the, the, the choice of this dichotomy that they're putting there. It's, uh, you know, it, it, it allows to apply their concept fully at this moment. Yeah, and it's, and it's and what they're talking about here is um, that because this is sort of pre-conscious or unconscious, this investment, um, we, we need to not necessarily look for what the desire ends up turning into or becomes, but in instead we need to be looking at what this sort of what is informing that desire or what's building it. It doesn't necessarily, how to put it, desire is not consequentialist, I think would be the easy way to say it. So, like that's that's what it sounds like they're saying to me. Uh, love impels us in this direction. Manifest syntheses are merely preconscious indicators of a degree of development. They're not necessarily um, sort of consequentialist. I think I would say. I think that's the way I'm going to put it. Is that fair? Huh? Yeah. I I think I would agree that's not really a teleological. I agree with you. It's not so teleological. 
the the part that I'm latching on to here is like um, so usually we we start with rationality as just kind of a given, right? And we kind of do that with love, but I think what they're driving at here too is how, especially since they're contrasting disinterested love and like a, like a like this is the the classic Greek thing, right? Like a philia, right? A disinterested love, and then like the more platonic uh, eros, like the erotic love that's actually like that does impel you uh, rather than compel you. But uh, the thing I really like is where they, about this paragraph, especially in moving toward an idea of like this love being produced and moving in like this kind of pre-conscious way, they start out by saying, right, libidinal investment does not bear upon the regime of the social syntheses, but upon the degree of development and of the forces or of the energies on which these syntheses depend. It does not bear upon the selections, detachments, and remainders effected by these syntheses, but upon the natures of the codes and the flows that condition them. So we're seeing like, um, right, like, so like uh, libidinal investments, reactionary and revolutionary investments in that sense, they don't bear upon the molar and molecular so directly in terms of the syntheses, but they condition the forces that are going to affect those syntheses and how they form, how they, um, the energy, right? So like the desiring production, the libido, noumena, and the voluptu, this that's moving through them is being conditioned in this way it's being affected and in that sense too we're seeing codes and territories in that sense also affected here when i and i like that direction i like that thank you jack um and then towards the end of the paragraph they basically take this and they say look the the what ends up happening is basically these flows of desire that are passing over this grand social machine by purpose of doing that, it, the, by purpose of flowing over the body of the socius, this full body, the flows that run on the porous full body of a socius, the, these are the object of desire higher than all aims. This, these rivulets that allow our desire to flow never break or code enough. There's always, it always feels like there's more. And in that way, it's an libidinal investment that basically feels like it's paying off all the time. Uh, even though it's not, it, it feels as though it is because it's basically giving you excess libidinal investment as it's going. Right. And more, more directly, it, it feels like it has an aim, right? So where they go on to say the manifest syntheses are merely the pre-conscious indicators of a degree of development. The apparent interest and aims are merely the pre-conscious exponents of a social full body, right? The syntheses here seem to appear as though, right, in, in the pre-conscious sense rather than the unconscious sense, in the pre-conscious sense, the syntheses appear to have aims in that, right? We think there, this is your point about the teleological, right? We think there's a kind of telos happening, but they go on to say, right, as Klazowski says in his profound commentary on Nietzsche, a form of power is identical with the violence it exerts by its very absurdity. But it can exert this violence only by assigning itself aims and meanings in which even the most enslaved elements participate. So we're talking about the conditioning of power, the conditioning of, um, you know, the absurdity here, like a lack of telos, like it's like Roger said, it's not a rational or irrational thing, uh, which they're going to go on to say, right? Uh, and the purpose of thereby converting the absurdity into spirituality. Right? So they're talking about how, like, the, the absurdity itself 
of like uh, the, this power, the violence and everything, the conditionality and conditioning of it and how it affects is masked in a certain way, is cloaked. And that absence of like a, a telos or rationality is cloaked in something that actually like um, sort of assigns it one, despite it, it, it's almost like a Baudrillard point in a sense that it makes a presence where there's an absence, but the absence is still there. Love it. Uh, any last thoughts before I move on? Because we're about to uh, just kind of continue that point, I think, actually. All right. We have seen how the capitalist machine constituted a system of eminence ordered by a great mutant flow, non-possessive and non-possessed, flowing over the full body of capital and forming an absurd power. Everyone in his class and his person receives something from this power, or is excluded from it, insofar as the great flow is converted into incomes, incomes of wages or of enterprise that define aims or spheres of interest, selections, detachments, and portions. But the investment of the flow itself and its axiomatic, which to be sure requires no precise knowledge of political economy, is the business of the unconscious libido inasmuch as it is, as it is presupposed by the aims. We see the most disadvantaged, the most excluded members of society invest with passion the system that oppresses them, and where they always find an interest, since it is here that they search for and measure it. Interest always comes after. Anti-production effuses in the system. Anti-production is loved for itself, as is the way in which desire represses itself in the great capitalist aggregate. Repressing desire not only for others, but in oneself, being the cop for others and for oneself. That is what arouses, and it is not ideology, it is economy. Capitalism garners and possesses the force of the aim and the interest, power, but it feels a disinterested love for the absurd and non-possessed force of the machine. Oh, to be sure, it is not for himself or his children that the capitalist works, but for the immortality of the system. A violence without purpose, a joy, a pure joy in feeling oneself a wheel in the machine, traversed by flows, broken by skizzes, placing oneself in a position where one is thus traversed, broken, fucked by the socius, looking for the right place where, according to the aims and the interests assigned to us, one feels something moving that is neither an interest nor a purpose, a sort of art for art's sake in the libido, taste for a job well done. Each one in his own place, the banker, the cop, the soldier, the technocrat, the bureaucrat, and why not the worker, the trade unionist? Desire is a gate. Oh my god, we're not making friends in this one. <laughs> no. Is, is that a... Well, never mind. So let's break this one down. This is kind of an important paragraph. Um, you think? Um, well, uh, one of the things that strikes me when they talk about this, uh, I'm going to tell a little bit of a person. I used to work in kitchens. It's probably my favorite job I have ever had. I was a cook, chef, sous chef, whatever title that the shitty place uh, ran. And to this day, it is the most emotionally satisfying job I've had. I've done far cooler things, but there is something about uh, being a cog in a machine that is functioning that works for a while, that works great together. At the end of the day, you have a few beers, you smile, and you go to sleep. That 
feels like like that's what they're talking about here that that enjoyment we take in those moments yeah and uh on the reverse you know since i'm doing social sciences you know and i write texts and i think about things sometimes you know that the best of my capacities there's never satisfaction in this really uh but I was doing security work uh, also in my life and I was working shows and I was working bars and many things. And there's way more enjoyment when you're part of, you know, when they say you're just a cog into the machine, there's way more enjoyment into tasks like this than something that is, you know, that you're, you're not, you're not in a chain of production. You're just like the producer by yourself. It's like the artist work kind of, and that's, uh, yeah. So I totally feel this. So I would just wanted to give an example of like a complete reverse, uh, situation where enjoyment doesn't come easily. Well, and, and I think tonally the way they're talking about this that I really enjoy is, uh, normally when you're talking about people in positions, like I was just talking about, uh, the cooks, the, workers at Walmart, whatever it is that are working in jobs where they're cogs in the machine and they seem to genuinely enjoy it. And they tell you, actually, I, I love my job, which a lot of them do. Um, one of the things that happens often in liberal media or even leftist media is uh, the, the sort of dismissal of this as being a place of comfort. Comfort tends to have laziness, uh, uh, acceptance, uh, resignation as, as con connected words to it. Uh, but this very much, their entire play is like, no, actually, this is this is from a place of passions, of drama. This is this is a, a a place where people are really coming at, and they really do enjoy these things in a profound passion, libidinally invested way, not just simply, oh yes, no, this will do fine. Which is very often what leftist and liberal media will say about, especially poor white people uh, who are stuck in their situations. Since nobody disagrees, we can uh, work to something else. Apparently. Uh, well, I was going to say to that point, it interests me, though, because, like, it's almost like they're talking about, like, an, an interested, disinterested love. Like, is it's interesting what they're doing here. But, like, because they're talking about capitalism. Sorry, they write, capitalism garners and possesses the force of the aim and the interest power. But it feels like a disinterested love for the absurd and non-possessed force of the machine. Oh, to be sure, it is not for himself or his children that the capitalist works, but for the immortality of the system. So it's interesting right there because they're talking about capitalism, you know, collecting and, and sort of uh, wielding uh, the force of like the force of direction and the power to, to do direction, right? But then they follow that up with, but it feels like a disinterested love for the absurd and non-possessed force of the machine right like it's interesting here because with the example of the of the person working for the immortality of the system right it, it's kind of you, you get what you're talking about you absolutely get those joys and, and the joy of being a cog and the the sense of like meaning that comes from all that right but at the same time there is this disinterested aspect isn't there in the sense that like this is for this isn't for yourself right there's the disinterest um for yourself for immediacies for desire it's it's about the promulgation of the very system that mates cogs so it's, mm -hmm. it's interesting there's like a self there's like that self presence but there's also like a self-effacing happening and it and it for me it it 
it plays much more into actually, uh, I've been fortunate to know a lot of people who are very, very wealthy. And a lot of people say, well, obviously they're happy. They're not. They don't really do what they do f with money or things like that because they're dying to, or they, you know, some of them want to buy a new boat. Sometimes that happens, but it's, uh, there's a compulsion to it. And the fighting for the immortality of the system, the idea that they've now become part of that system and they need to keep it going fits more with what my experience has been. Um, a lot yeah, more. but I, I think I think we're rationalizing just a little bit too much. Um, the way I understand it, maybe it's wrong, you know, tell me if I'm wrong. Um, it's that it's like a there's a moment of bliss, you know, when you engage into something that dispossesses you, you know, you're, you're not fully um, in control of what you're doing. It's like being in a wave or something, you know, it transports you. So there's like a feeling. Ecstasy. Yeah, there's like a feeling of ecstasy into this. So the investment of the capitalists, for example, or, you know, the, the dispossessed or the disenfranchised into their work, uh, you invest to actually get the second wave back. So basically uh, what they're saying about the capitalists is like, you know, he's not working for his children because he's not producing a plus value that is being uh, given to, you know, a wife or husband or children directly. It's something that has been produced and invested into the system. So the interest, uh, not interest in the way they mean it, but like the capitalist, in, the, the capital interest comes back as a profit, as a plus value, because the plus value is the result of this investment and then comes back and can be reinvested within the family. So it, it changes the way that it's being uh, is, understood. Is another way to say this that, uh, because I, I like that take. Um, I'm going to have to think about it for a bit, but it feels like almost uh, efficiency becomes masturbatory. The, the idea of I'm connected into this world, how, how well I'm connected into the cogs is the efficiency of that and my investment. But the, the, but, but the, the, the masturbatory N is the, N, the invisible N of the market. Yes, right, yeah, right. That's right. And so I don't think, I don't think we disagree, Roger. Um, I I think we agree there because like as I'm oh, reading yeah. this, I, it's, it's um, just a different degree. I think that we're still having this. We we still think in matters of subject as something that is intentional, and that's another point that I want to bring later. But it's 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 really like a pre-individual individual drive that like you know cuts across. Yeah, no, I agree with you because it's. I, it's I all think we produced. agree. I think right now the the way I'm phrasing this, Roger, is when I'm talking about this, I am I'm trying to place it against uh, conversations that I've had recently or I've had in the past about um, why fascists are the way they are, why certain people love the being part of the machine, uh, and so I'm I may sound like I'm assigning subjectivity to it. I don't. Uh, I don't. It's, it's the whole. My whole point is that those other responses have been absolutely not uh, satisfactory to me. And so, as I'm talking about this, when I'm saying things like um, the the capitalist, these people I know, their their underlying drive is X, Y, and Z. It's not so much that they have this sort of third party big thing that they're chasing on. Um, it, one thing I want to go back to real quick, though, because I have a lot to process there, is. Uh, the idea of being a cog and how that gives you uh, elation, it gives you jouissance, whatever you want to call it. Um, 
it feels the way you were talking about it, and I've had this com comment offline with a few people. If anyone here plays video games, uh, Tetris would be one, but anyone that's more of a Twitch type thing, uh, there is a thing called the zone that you get into when you're playing games. Is that along the lines of the kind of elation we're talking about, Roger? I would for for being a gamer myself. <laughs> and that's that's how I reset myself. And because when I'm working, when I'm thinking, I'm always I'm never into this state of bliss. But when you get into the zone when you're playing, you forget everything. You connect with the machine, you connect with the pixels. You are one and the same with your little gun and you're going. You know, it's like playing Dark Souls, for example, or you know, like the stupid games of Rust or like DayZ that, you know, you lose so much every time you play. It, it, it's, you become frightened, you know, you have physical reaction, you shake, you know, like you sweat and everything. As the same thing as like your life is being threatened. So this this moment, it's like it's something we want. It, we, it's like a form of like, you know, on one end, orgasm on the on the other side, you know, the semi experience of it's like the, the limit experience of death, you know. So being in the in the in the zone, it's a little bit like that, you know, it's like giving up and giving in. Cool. Um, the, the last thing I really uh, do want to bring up, though, because I'm big into pop culture on these things, is uh, this last part, the officer of the penal colony. Um, but the way that they talk about it here, machine is not technical, but social and through which desire desires its own repression feels also like it would apply nicely to Snowpiercer. If you haven't seen it, I recommend that film. But it feels like it's talking greatly about that film. Not the TV show, the film. Or TV show, I'm, I'm trying it right now, it's not good. It's fine. It's fine. Like eh. it, No, it's... If I were to say, hey, it's like someone made a TV show of Snowpiercer, you'd be like, ah, it's... Uh, that's exactly how you should feel about it. <laughs> yeah, but like I was really interested because I love the movie. Oh, that's and, stupid. Uh, that's really stupid because it's a TV show. Yeah. On 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 <laughs> T T N T. Who is it? I think it's, I, don't I think it's T N T. It's AMC. One of those guys. Ugh. I still my media, so. <laughs> um. Yeah. Another thing is like interest is something that comes after. Uh, I feel that in, in the way that they're they're displacing, you know, because in Usurl and, you know, all those people uh, into, into, into phenomenology in, in, in general, intent is being placed at the beginning. So basically, and, and how modernity works, you know, before doing anything, before building a house, you need to have a plan, you need to have intentions that come into the plan and, you know, have a mode of operation that is being ready before you materialize the idea into the matter. When, when they talk about ideology and interest being ideology, it's not a matter, uh, matter of ideology, but of political economy. They move from the idealist perspective to the materialist one. When they say interest comes after is that they, they, they come from the transcendence um, of the idea to the eminence in the situation where the intent will come from a certain arrangement or certain assemblage of uh, matter and flux. So there, there's this whole um, underlying criticism that is going there, and they, they posit themselves in regard to the dominant uh, philosophy of the time. 
We have seen how the capitalist machine constituted a system of immanence ordered by a great mutant flow, non-possessive and non-possessed, flowing over the full body of capital and forming an absurd power. Everyone in his class and his person receives something from this power or is excluded from it, insofar as the great flow is converted into incomes, incomes of wages, or of enterprises that define aims or spheres of interest, selections, detachments, and portions. But the investment of the flow itself and its axiomatic, which to be sure requires no precise knowledge of political economy, <clears throat> is the business of the unconscious libido, inasmuch as it is presupposed by the aims. We see the most disadvantaged, the most excluded members of society. Wait, we just read this. I'm sorry, I, I, I rolled back. I will edit that out. <laughs> and that is it. I was looking and I was just like... God damn it, wow. sorry. 40 seconds, 40 minutes, edit that shit out. Uh, give me two seconds. Yes, that's right. We ended on agape. 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 Because why not? <clears throat> not only can the libidinal investment of the social field interfere with the investment of interest and constrain the most disadvantaged, the most exploited, to seek their ends in an oppressive machine, but what is reactionary or revolutionary in the pre-conscious investment of interest does not necessarily coincide with what is reactionary or revolutionary in the unconscious libidinal investment. A revolutionary pre-conscious investment bears upon new aims, new social syntheses, a new power. But it could be that a part, at least, of the unconscious libido continues to invest the former's body, the old form of power, its codes and its flows. It is all the easier, and the contradiction is all the better masked, as a state of forces does not prevail over the former state without preserving or reviving the old full body as a residual and subordinated territoriality. Witness how the capitalist machine revives the despotic Urstadt, or how the socialist machine preserves a state and market monopoly capitalism. There is, there is something more serious, even when the libido embraces the new body, the new force that corresponds to the effectively revolutionary goals and syntheses from the viewpoint of the pre-conscious. It is not certain that the unconscious libidinal investment is itself revolutionary. For the same breaks do not pass at the level of, un of the unconscious desires and the pre-conscious interests. The pre-conscious revolutionary break is sufficiently well-defined by the promotion of a socius as a full body carrying new aims, as a form of power or a formation of sovereignty that subordinates desiring production under new conditions. But even though the unconscious libido is charged with new conditions, uh, <clears throat> its investment is not necessarily revolutionary in the same sense as the pre-conscious investment. In fact, the unconscious revolutionary break implies for its part the body without organs as the limit of the socius that desiring production subordinates in its turn under the condition of an overthrown power an overthrown subordination all right let's 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 take it uh three three levels or three lines uh the reactionary the revolutionary and the preconscious um how do you say this in English? I was reading in the French, the um, the libidinal inconscience in in, in precon. Oh, wait, I'm just gonna find it. That just just go on to something else, and I'll go back to this. It's the uh, the preconscious and the unconscious libidinal investment. Okay, so there's you know we have three strands there. 
So we need to uh, make a difference between the pre-conscious uh, and the revolutionary. The thing is that, you know, in our society, in our liberal society, we say, oh, follow your dream, follow your desires. So to, is, is, and then we, some, some social movements will say, oh, if you follow your desire, like anarchism, for example, if, if you let your desire express itself, it's going to be revolutionary. And they say, oh, desire is revolutionary. But the problem is that if, if it's straight up desire, uh, it's going to be reintegrated into the machine because it is from the machine. The second strand is, because they don't talk about the re, uh, reactionary at this moment, but the revolutionary is a break in there. There's need to be a break within desire. Desire must be cut at one point or, and re-articulated into a certain manner. Yeah, this takes us back to much earlier in the book when they were talking about how you can be, you can be consciously revolutionary but unconsciously reactionary in a sense right there's a way in which the 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 pre-conscious what would appear to be a pre-conscious uh revolutionary uh move was actually has this unconscious um sort of reactionary investment or at least it can so right they, they give the example of the ussr for or the socialist machine right it just it's a pre-conscious way of do, you know redoing capitalism so it's for me the the question i have is between the two types of revolutionary breaks they're talking about pre-conscious and the unconscious um it seems as they're talking about it uh that the i'm just going to quote holland here uh Pre-conscious revolutionary break operates in the service of and with a view towards a new socius, new aims and interests, new forms of codification, new forms of power. Unconscious revolutionary breaks, by contrast, operate in the promotion of molecular desire, subordinating molar forms to the subversive free play of desiring production. Um, to try to say this another way, how, how I'm reading that is that uh, our pre-conscious, uh, let's say, uh, I don't want to say pure because that privileges it, but it is pre-conscious. Uh, or, or the pre-individual. The pre-individual, pre then, th thank you. Pre-individual uh, sort of desires are, uh, if it's revolutionary, it's it's beyond free flow. Uh, it, it exists in a place that it hasn't yet dealt with the full body. It hasn't looked at the body of uh, the socius, it hasn't, it doesn't give a shit. It's just flying around looking for escapes. Uh, after uh, a handful of syntheses, uh, and it gets in, sort of integrated, and it's had a chance, uh, revolutionary desire in the unconscious, uh, that sort of uh, what I may call my revolutionary desire and actually be able to put more of a finger on, uh, that is actually about sort of that doesn't really play outside of the socius but instead is a desire for me at my molecular at my uh, in my individual level to bring out my molecular desires and to play with those in a new way rather than com something that completely is disregarding the socius entirely uh kind of I think the passage to focus on is the pre-conscious revolutionary break is sufficiently well-defined by the promotion of a socius as a full body, uh, as a full body carrying new aims, as a form of power or a formation of sovereignty that subordinates desiring production under new conditions. So, right, like the pre-conscious or like this, uh, 
like if you if you want to use like the, a more smondan take but you know what's going to pass into consciousness as like a as a, a direction and what we should do right is basically um the promotion of the socius to carry new aims right new telos or like to instantiate um some form of power some formation of the a despotism because they're using the sovereignty there so they're trying to change the structure that's going to affect desiring production, right? Change the conditions. They follow that up with, um, or, well, I shouldn't say the conditions, change the, um, change the molar in that sense. But through, with respect to the socius, because they're going to write, but even though the unconscious libido is charged with investing the socius, its investment is not necessarily revolutionary in the same sense as the reconscious investment. So they're drawing the difference here to say that like, the revolutionary unconscious investment. Well, let me back up. So, like the, even though the the preconscious is focusing on the socius in this respect, right? So, like changing how we interact with capital, which is kind of what socialism wants to do, right? Change how we interact with capital. Change how like we interact with the value forms. The classic Marxist debate. Um, even though it's got that going on sort of at this like more active level, passively speaking, it's the unconscious libido that does the investing into such a socius. So you see there's already like, there's a, a discontinuity here between the unconscious and this passive sense of investment and the more active sense of the preconscious and what it's, what the, what is more actively sought. Okay. Um, they do get it more into the next paragraph. Does anyone have any comments or questions on this one before I move on? Because I, I do want to try to understand my question, and I think the next paragraph is worth bringing in. We'll wait for it. Yeah, what's up? Just to finish the passage, they, right? So they conclude with, in fact, the unconscious revolutionary break implies for its part the body of that organs as the limit of the socius, the desiring production, subordinates in its turn under the condition of an overthrown power and overthrown subordination, right? So once again, we're back to the body without organs as a way of changing or at least affecting um, uh, social investments in relation to socius, but more directly with the body without organs as like the, the more important um, thing that has to kind of passively be affected as opposed to the more like a conscious um, goal of trying to like, you know, just change what's around the the socius, right? Because that the problem with that is it misses the the passive unconscious. It misses the the body without organs. You know, it, it, to put it really blasé, it misses the forest for the trees. Let, or yeah, maybe but, it misses but, the trees but, for the forest. Yeah, I, I will just say one thing. That's something we talked about uh, yesterday. Full body versus full body without organs is different. The full body is the zero intensity. And the full body without organs, it's the intensification. So the full body without organ would be, you know, the world to come. And, you know, how it actually um, enables the full body to be re-inscribed or deteriorized into a certain way, how it allows movement. Uh, so there's 
there's always this little play into this concept. You know, it was pretty paradoxical yesterday and we identified that because we talked about it for like 20 minutes and not everyone was understanding it, but they're still onto this idea. Yeah, I think we agree there. Excellent. I'm going to continue reading because it's about to get a little deeper into pre-conscious and unconscious revolution. So uh, it's worth diving in. The pre-conscious revolution refers to a new, new regime of social production that creates, distributes, and satisfies new aims and interests. But the unconscious revolution does not merely refer to the socius that conditions this change as a form of power. It refers within this socius to the regime of desiring production as an overthrown power on the body without organs. It is not the same state of flows and skizzes. In one case, the break is between two forms of socius, the second of which is measured according to its capacity to introduce the flows of desire into a new code or a new axiomatic of interest. In the other case, the break is within the socius itself, in that it has the capacity for causing the flows of desire to circulate following their positive lines of escape, and for breaking them again following breaks or productive breaks, breaks of productive breaks. The most general principle of schizoanalysis is that desire is always constitutive of a social field. In any case, desire belongs to the infrastructure, not to ideology. Desire is in production as social production, just as production is in desire as desiring production. These forms can be understood in two ways, depending on whether desire is enslaved to a structured molar aggregate that it constitutes under a given form of power and gregariousness, or whether it subjugates the large aggregate to the functional multiplicities that it itself forms on the molecular scale. It is no more a case of persons or individuals in this instance than in the other. In the pre-conscious revolutionary, if the pre-conscious revolutionary break appears at a first level and is designed by the characteristics of a new aggregate, the unconscious or libidinal breaks belongs to the second level and is defined by the driving role of desiring production and the position of its multiplicities. It is understandable, therefore, that a group can be revolutionary from the standpoint of class interest and its preconscious investments, but not be so, and even remain fascist and police-like from the standpoint of its libidinal investments. Truly revolutionary preconscious interests do not necessarily imply unconscious investments of the same nature. An apparatus of interest never takes the place of a machine of desire. That gets complicated. Very complicated. And says some pretty massive things, um, uh, like desire belongs to infrastructure, not ideology, which is... Uh, an interesting yeah. place to start. Yes. So it's, for example, the way that I do my research, I'm, I'm interested in mobility and infrastructure and how infrastructure produces modes of being. And so it's not like capitalism as, you know, or ableism that creates, you know, this, this, uh, this world or, um, out of thin air it is the material conditions in which we found ourselves that will construct us from the inside it's it's you know it's the real world that is like producing so it's uh it's to make this move from ideology as an ideal form to infrastructure as the material machine that is producing 
um, either intent or interest or limitations or not. It's not, you know, it's, it's not the idea that constructs that. The idea is something that is found secondary, but in the way we understand the world, we place it as prior. Yeah, I think, and I think that's where the big sort of break with uh, psychoanalysis comes in in this book, where um, desire is moved from this sort of purely internal force, like it is in Freud and Lacan, and, you know, made into a material thing, which allows for them to make their Marxist critique of capitalism and, and sort of try to properly contextualize what psychoanalysis is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, today I was like trying to the, I was, I was with a team of lawyers for a project and they were asking me, they're like, well, why infrastructure? What, what do you mean by this? And I was just like the curb cuts, you know, the transportation system and, you know, the, 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 the urbanism and how the, the cities and the land and the territories are being actual, actually constituted. And, uh, how we define ourselves in relation to those constitutions. But they're like, but it's the law that, you know, the law is the foundation. I was just like, okay, that's that's fine. Like, let's settle on that. But it's two different understanding. It's really two different understanding. Either you come from the ideology and the symbol uh, as what is producing reality, or you start with the material. So it's it's really interesting to see this, how it functions in the real world. I'm reminded of the uh, Borges story, uh, the map in the territory. Can you say more? Yeah, you you had these lawyers coming at you with this sort of um, upholding the law as if that was the important thing, which is a sort of ideal structure like a map versus the territory that the map covers over in the Borges story. So I think it's always this kind of play that is, you know, into this book, how, you know, for example, in psychoanalysis, uh, desire, it's, it's something out of symbols, you know, you desire symbols, but it's, it's in reality, you know, in the clinic, you see that it's not really that if you, if you actually listen to people, you will understand that it's not that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the big break with Lacan. Like they'll acknowledge that there's a side of this process i guess desiring production as a process that works according to semiotic rules and a despotic signifier but they're really really insistent that desire is in actuality a material thing that is bigger than the psychoanalysis that bigger than psychoanalysis has given it credit for being i'm gonna try and approach it a little bit of a different way perhaps it's like what i'm reading here is um I think you can see in your example of the, the lawyer and the law, right? So like pre-conscious investment, right? So they're looking at like how law informs conscious actions or like more active um, activity, right? But if that's a lot different, right? Because we're talking, we're starting with aggregates, right? We're starting with how people are moving in this aggregated sense. And we're not talking about like, to your point, the curbs and that. It's like the example I have in mind here is um, the current debate in Marxism, like, if you guys know Richard Wolff, right? Change the structure, change the system, change, you know, your life, right? So, like, his idea is, um, right, so if the board of directors becomes the, to- the aggregate of the people working there, 
well, there you go, right? Like that's that's what socialism should be doing. That's the Marxist move now. Um, the pre-conscious move, right? Because you want to change what's going to move into consciousness there. But that's not, and while that can be revolutionary in a pre-conscious sense, right, that is a radical change. That's not actually the unconscious revolutionary investment, is it? Because you're not looking at the body without organs. You're not looking at desiring machines and how people uh, more directly, how, how desire at this more molecular level, how things interact beyond, beneath simply people, how people are produced in that manner. And changing those things, you're, you're just, you're starting with the aggregate as though it's the solution and the problem. And I think that's part of the difference they're trying to highlight. Um, and I think you can see it really well in your example, uh, Mr. Normandin. I think, but, but at the same time, um, I'm, I'm going to let you go after this. Um, you need to... to take account that what they talk about the revolutionary moments uh, you know that was written in 72 is just after may 68 so the major player is the communist party in france but also the fascist and the student groups and the worker groups so there, there's a criticism there but i'm not really sure who they are criticizing because they're criticizing either one of those three forces or um, they're criticizing all of them. I, before Muskie responds, I take it to be like almost a general sense of how we typically, just like it seems to me to apply whether we're talking about Marxism today or Marxism then, it's still a problem of starting with the pre-conscious, right? Starting with very much the aggregates and taking that as problem and solution. So we walk it back to like yesterday, right? starting with structure, starting with molar, and taking that as though everything follows from it. I, I think. Yeah, I'm, I think that's a really good pivot to to back to the text and like what the tension they're getting at here is because they, they do want to criticize people for beginning with these pre-conscious uh, group ideal um, programs and and then then you know, calling that the be-all, end-all of revolution. Uh, though I will, I, I do want to say that the problem, like, uh, it's not a, a binary distinction between, like, the real unconscious revolutionary desire and the pre-conscious revolutionary desire of these sort of groups and parties. Because they go on later to talk about how, you know, someone a real revolutionary with the unconscious desire to overturn the subordination of desiring production will go on to create a group and oscillate back and forth between that, you know, party group and their own, you know, and rupture with it and go on and do their own projects or come back to it. And and it's not as clear of a distinction where like people who are doing these pre-conscious revolutionary investments are wrong outright. That's, I don't think that's what they're saying because you know, libido is always investing a social field, though. So, uh, even the unfettered revolutionary schizo is investing a social field and creating a territory and a circuit where other people can come in to occupy places. And theoretically, then they go on to advance a kind of project, depending on what their, uh, how big their desire goes. Mm -hmm. That reminds me into the abecedaire, you know, the, the thing he did with the, 
with Claire Panet, like the answering each letter of the alphabet with something. Um, he's talking in G, he's talking about the left, and he's saying that he never got, like everybody got their, the, 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 their card to the Communist Party in France, and he was the only one who didn't have a card. He was like, I'm, I was just not interested. So that's, that's, I will say it's interesting, but it's, I think it's this relation to uh, the revolutionary party that becomes um, an apparatus by itself. It becomes another dis dispositif in French to, um, to counteract, you know, the capitalist dispositive or apparatus. And it's, um, And, you know, it's this reinvestment into the state, trying to go back, become hegemonic or, you know, take take the tools of domination and use them for the proletariat. I think it, they're referring to this as, you know, something that proposes itself to be revolutionary will become also, you know, totalitarian, fascist or uh, will play police. Yeah, no, I think you're dead on about that because right there, right? It is understandable, therefore, that a group can be revolutionary from the standpoint of class interest and its pre-conscious investments, but not be so and even remain fascist and police-like from the standpoint of its libidinal investments, right? So, like, they're they're the kind. I, I think you're doing the contrast really well there because, like, we can talk about making this active group. We can talk about actively, like, you know, how the creating a party and how it won't be like the, the fascist and it won't be that structure. But in that sense, we like, you know, just because we make it a democracy doesn't mean we've taken it. Um, we've actually changed the way it interrelates with the sociocies. Right. So in this is the entire unconscious field, right? It, it looks just at the pre-conscious as though that's the, again, the problem and the solution. It misses the investments. It misses the, the more ontological, Um, base level, if you will, and in in doing so, right, it rep it ends up like actively reproducing itself, or, or rather, the very like this is their same criticism about anti psychiatry, right? It criticizes Oedipus, and then what does it do when it gets into practice? Well, it reproduces Oedipus, it regenerates it. So, right, like a lot of the a lot of the work here in these two paragraphs has been to highlight how can something be How can something that seems actively revolutionary be unconsciously reactionary? Yeah, spot, I, I 100% agree. Uh, I, I, I would put it, I, I want to put it another way too, because I really like the um, image they use of like wanting to be a cop for other people. And as long as um, unconscious invents, investments privilege associates as this sort of What's the right word I'm looking for? They privilege the socius over desiring production and use a socius to repress desiring production. The, the, the person with that kind of unconscious investment is always going to enjoy being a cop. Yeah, and you know, you can see it in new social movements and what's going on within the left or, you know, progressive liberal uh, people over Facebook, Instagram, or the way that they're, they, they're crafting their ideal, but at the same time, you know, there's always like playing cop uh, in regard to other people. So it's like taking back the tools of repression and making them your own into the advancement of your own cause. I, I also think, because um, I keep looking at this with an eye at the right, 
one of the things that's been really interesting in my lifetime, uh, from Reagan to Trump, the change in rhetoric has shifted from what was very much a call for stability and for return to the old ways and change to with Trump, well, it's make America great again and all that. Underlying it is actually a challenge to power structures. That's what they believe they're doing. Uh, that's, that's the rhetoric they use. Uh, they are the most bootlicker type guys who are now uh, up here in Portland and Vancouver. Uh, they're cheering on the police uh, against protesters who are against the police. But the guys cheering on the police have don't tread on me flags, uh, which is fascinating. This kind of thing has shifted over 40 years to be almost like they're playing towards this revolutionary capacity inside of even those people and making everything about revolution, fighting the deep state, fight the permanent state, fight the libs, fight the people actually in power. It's an interesting thought. No, I think that's head on. That example for like someone who has a revolutionary pre-conscious interest of overthrowing the deep state, but an unconscious investment in maintaining police and policing other people, spot on. I think that's exactly the tension they're getting at. And uh, I, I was I was about to say um, the the you know there's a there's a switch between the left and the right at this moment. Some some elements you know that was like uh, traditionally on the left are can be found on the right now and it's big it becomes like super complicated to to understand those dynamics when you're being like cookie cut as a marxist you know i've been raised into like this this kind of uh, ideology and identity like and it's really weird because i see them do stuff we would have done 20 years in the past and i'm just like oh god like this is i, I don't understand but it, it's a really it's a really good way to understand how desire can have like two uh, two sides, and both sides don't have to concord with one another. They can be opposite. Well, and it also I think gets to that there is a there is an underlying feeling, especially in America, it's more vocalized, but I think everyone has this where uh, people will say things like the Democrats and Republicans are right. They're the right and the left are the same. You'll hear centrists scream this, but I think uh, this section is getting at sort of the that the reason i think we all have that feeling that overall their investment is in the same body without organ now the different degrees of it and maybe they may want to make changes within it but ultimately it's the same investments that are doing it and well we all have some level of revolutionary capacity it's being co-opted in a handful of different directions and see like let's go back to theory um Laclos and Mouf, which are um, left thinkers, uh, actually rehabilitated Carl Schmitt on the left. Carl Schmitt was a lawyer in uh, the Nazi Germany. So it was super critical of liberalism. And it's really interesting to, if you are against liberalism and li the liberal state, and you want to, you know, do, you know, communist revolution or whatever, uh, Carl Schmitt is really interesting to understand the functioning of the, the liberal world. And it's been taken back by the left as, you know, a theorician of, of, of the enemy. But at the same time, he's the real enemy. He's on the other side. But you, you can find uh, elements into a thought that will support the claims of the left. Because the libidinal, uh, uh, the, rev the, the libidinal revolutionary stance is the same. But they, there's a change 
when it comes down to the actual revolution or the kind of investment that wants to be done. Mm -hmm. But I think we've got to keep in mind like the, the, the conscious or at least the pre-conscious and the unconscious here too, because like, just to go back to the, the example of like Wolf or if you want to use a different one, a big debate right now is about policing, right? Replacing police with social workers. And that's supposed to be um, a more salient form of policing. But it is in of itself a kind of policing, right? And it's typically a leftist argument. So, like, one aspect of here in terms of, like, pre-conscious use of power, right, interest. One thing I'm concerned about in this movement is are we going to see people move from the incarceration of the jail to the incarceration of the asylum? Or the, the drugs. Or, or the drugs. Yeah, how is this going to affect... Because I think this is really what they're after is like, you know, you've you've given us you've taken away cops with, you know, copper buttons and you've given us people with notepads and the power to, you know, put us in a different kind of prison. Right. It's I think that's what they're after is the sense of the pre-conscious thinking it's doing something revolutionary. And maybe it is from the standpoint of the class interest and whatnot. But it's, it's just recapitulating, right? It's, it's not actually using the body. It's not actually working with the body of the organs and the socius in, in the unconscious, passive manner. It's looking at the active as though that's the only thing that matters. All right, I'm going to uh, move on. I believe we're at a revolutionary group. We just, we just got flagged by, by saying that. <laughs> A revolutionary group at a pre-conscious level remains a subjugated group, even in seizing power, as long as this power itself refers to a form of force that continues to enslave and crush desiring production. That's a great sentence, by the way, uh, saying. The moment it is pre-consciously revolutionary, such a group already presents all the unconscious characteristics of a subjugated group. The subordination to associates as a fixed support that attributes to itself the productive forces, extracting and absorbing the surplus value therefrom, the effusion of anti-production and death-carrying elements within the system which feels and pretends to be all the more immortal, the phenomena of group super-egoization, narcissism, and hierarchy, the mechanisms for the repression of desire. A subject group, on the contrary, is a group whose libidinal investments are themselves revolutionary. It causes desire to penetrate into the social field and subordinates the socius or the form of power to desiring production. Productive of desire and a desire that produces, the subject group invents always mortal formations that exercise the effusion in it of a death instinct. It opposes real coefficients of transversality to the symbolic determinations of subjugation, coefficients without a hierarchy or a group superego. What complicates everything, it is true, is that the same individuals can participate in both kinds of groups in diverse ways. St. Juste, Lenin, Lenin's a good example. Uh, or the same group can present both characteristics at the same time in diverse situations that are nevertheless coexistent. A revolutionary group can already have reassumed the form of a subjugated group, yet be determined under certain conditions to continue to play the role of a subject group. One is continually passing from one type of group to the other. Subject groups are continually deriving from subjugated groups through a rupture of the latter. 
They mobilize desire and always cut its flows again further on, overcoming the limit, bringing the social machines back to the elementary forces of desire that form them. Footnote. On the group and its rupture or schiz, see Jean-Pierre Fay, Eclats, Change, number 7, page 217. Quote, What counts, what is effective in our opinion, is not such and such a group, but rather the dispersion or the diaspora produced by their splinterings. Uh, also, page 212-213 on the necessarily polyvocal character of subject groups and their writing. Um, I'm going to just go back to that fantastic first sentence. A revolutionary group at the pre-conscious level remains a subjugated group, even in seizing power, as long as this power itself refers to a form of force that continues to enslave and cr crush desiring production. That is a... Uh, put that one up on a, a board, hang it in the kitchen, replace the uh, home sweet home thing. That's the great line. Yeah, it sums up what we were talking about or, or what I was trying to get at with the um, police imagery that I was using, that as long as your socius, uh, that ideal of that group ideal is intent on stopping desiring production, uh, you're always going to be subjugated. There, There's always going to be people who love being cops. Yeah, and it, it you know, taps into resentment because you're resenting your position always. And, you know, it goes back to the thesis of Nietzsche about the slave morality. And, in, uh, and there's always this risk of, you know, um, wanting blood, wanting, you know, vengeance, having those negative effects um, instead of having a positive effect uh, into, you know, that passes into the conscious revolutionary moment. And I think it, it does a really nice, uh, it's a really nice way of thinking through this process of that revolutionary perspective, the desire to change things that is pre-conscious, but because our investments at the unconscious level continue to allow these trenches are designed, Oedipus is waiting for it, the zombie, the triangle shitting zombie is waiting for desire to be put into its mouth so it can shit out those it's everything's waiting at that moment. And if you're still invested in all of these apparatuses, uh, all of these machines that are designed to crush and designed to do things, you will naturally fall back into that trap. It's just the way it works. It's again, they, they are talking about, and I know they would spend a lot of time talking about the issues with the USSR and how a communist revolution supposedly can turn into such a nightmare. As this does a beautiful job of that. Sorry if there's tankies in here. I apologize, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, and in part, I think it helps here too. Like, so like we've, we've talked a little bit about surplus value and that. If we go back, like, they're not after surplus value of labor like Marx's, is. They're after surplus value of code. And it's really important here because, right, like, it's not about uh, capitalist accumulation for the sake of capital and that, right? Like it's, it's more about like the codes that are attached to all that and more directly to the desires in relation to the socius. And I think that's really critical here as we're seeing, for instance, when they write, um, the moment it is pre-consciously revolutionary, such a group already presents all the unconscious characteristics of a subjugated group. 
the subordination to associates as a fit support that attributes to itself the productive forces abstracting and absorbing the surplus value therefrom. The effusion of anti-production and death-carrying elements with, within the system which feels and pretends to be all the more immortal. The phenomena of group so-called super-egoization, super narcissism, and hierarchy, the mechanisms for the repression of desire. But inversely, they are also continually closing up again, remodeling themselves in the image of subjugated groups, reestablishing interior limits, reforming a great break that the flows will not pass through or overcome, subordinating desiring machines to the repressive aggregate that they constitute on a large scale. There is a speed of subjugation that is supposed to that is opposed to the coefficients of transversality. And what revolution is not tempted to turn against its subject groups, stigmatize as anarchistic or irresponsible, and to liquidate them? How do we combat the deadly inclination that makes a group pass from its revolutionary libidinal investments to revolutionary investments that are simply pre-conscious investments or investments of interest, then to pre-conscious investments that are simply reformist? And where do we even situate such and such a group? Did it ever have revolutionary unconscious investments? The Surrealist group, for example, with its fantastic subjugation, its narcissism, and its superego. It can happen that one lone man functions as a flow skiz, as a subject group, through a break with the subjugated group from which he excludes himself or is excluded, our toad, the schizo. And where do we situate the psychoanalytic group within this complexity of social investments? Every time we wonder when it started going bad, it is always necessary to trace further back in time. Freud as the group superego, an Oedipalizing grandfather, establishing Oedipus as an interior limit with all kinds of little narcissists around, and Reich the marginal, plotting a tangent of deterritorialization, causing the flows of desire to circulate, smashing the limit, breaching the wall. But it is not just a matter of literature or even psychoanalysis is a matter of politics, though not, as we shall see, of a program. Uh, okay. Um, so there's this politics of becoming there. You know, either you, uh, either you aim at the future and intensify and produce something, or you tend to go back to an original point or like a golden era or something. And I think that this is something that I discuss with people a lot. And this is where you can actually make the difference between the reactionary and the revolutionary. The moment something goes wrong, either you go back into like what daddy did to you when you were a little kid or, you know, or, or the, you know, the, the, the golden era just before he did something to you. And you try to go back there by exercising what daddy did to you. That's the same thing in politics. He's looking back, you know, and that's what the, the conservatives are doing in the U.S., for example. They're looking back at the 50s and they're like, everything was so great. But it was not great, you know. But in, in their ideal mind, it was. Something happened in the 60s. They smoked pot and they had like free sex. That was really bad, and it degenerated into the situation we're in. And what they try to do is to go back there. But, you know, the revolutionary is to say, okay, let's eat from, like, the, the fucking dumpsters of history and, 
you know, like, uh, let's try to do something else. You know, we, we feed ourselves from the, the past, but to produce a future. I, I was going to say, especially like the last sentence, um, it's not, what is it? It is a matter of politics, though not as we shall see of a program, because this problem with subjugated and subject groups is for them like a real material problem of economy and desire and politics. Uh, but it's not the problem of a program because it can happen on the left and the right. And I like the way I feel like that was a succinct way of putting at some of the tensions we were getting at with our earlier discussion. Yeah, and the solution isn't a rubric. Yeah, and the, the program is the same as the other poll problem. Because the program is how do you intervene into the clinic to uh, fix the problem uh, of the Udipal. So in politics, it would be the same thing. How do you devise a program or like a plan to uh, to restore something or to reestablish something new? And this takes us back to their criticisms of regression, right? And so like you get reproduction. And you get reproduction of the very thing you're dealing with at this very moment with like the the veneer of the what you're describing right of of like a nostalgia on top of it and that's you know that that allows for the paranoiac right at the unconscious level so here's a tough question then um is it ironic then that they're going they're proposing a new branch of psychoanalysis in this book and this whole section is about how you should avoid parties and programs and these sort of subject groups is the word they use but they're calling back to freud and the sort of group superego uh problems that they have with these groups parties uh molar bodies it does that kind of undermine their own point or or to what extent does it how can we reconcile that so to kick that off i'd say the first thing is you've got to be able to deal with re-territorialization and recoding right so like you know i, I personally i don't think co-opting takes place in this sense and we're not going to get into this discussion for for sake of time but the first thing I would say in, in terms of groups, right, the way desire interacts with groups and desiring production and that, because there's these elements of re-territorialization and recoding of decoding of deterritorialization, because there's flux, one of the first aspects of this, and I think they're driving at when they talk about um, there's a speed of subjugation as opposed to the coefficients of transversality, and what revolution is not tempted to turn its subject groups stigmatizes anarchistic or responsible to liquidate them i think they, they have this in mind right there's a way in which the, the things are changing and at that level right like in terms of like the re-territorizing and the recoding there's a way in which that itself can be turned can turn against uh, the very idea of a, the very i shouldn't say the idea the very assemblage of a, a subject group and turn them into a subjugated group and that in and of itself is not a problem of co-opting. That in and of itself is a problem of the engagement of desiring production here and in relation to the socius and um, uh, the body without organs. 
Yeah, it's not a question I'm really expecting an answer for, but it's just it's a food for thought kind of moment. And and maybe in a, in the future in a review we can come back to this as because it's the same as like a, you know the free thinker or a free spirit problem where how do you make a movement of free spirits? You you know how do you organize a party to overthrow the bourgeoisie without on some level engaging in this project of making a subjugated group because you have to have you know you have to subordinate some goals to other goals and if you're not going to come together as a collective you know mouth or a collective revolutionary organ and overthrow the you know oppressors how are you going to ever do it and yeah anyway, well, it's just I, food for I actually think they they include that and that they, they their answer is pretty simple it's about basically being able to maintain a level of transversality and their entire pitch is less about uh, as julia says uh we're talking about the difference between almost a proposal and a prescription i would i would say that their thing is basically the moment you start being prescriptive about how things need to be in the new world you've already lost the whole point of how capital works or the point of the body without organs or the point of Let's say uh, apparatuses like, uh, well, they, they name a, a bunch of them in here, um, but uh, let's say Oedipus as an example, is these are machines that uh, produce themselves. They're self-replicating machines. Our job is at this point, it's not so much if we come up with an idea, the machines, they eat up our desire and they, they shit it out and they turn it into whatever they're going to. Our job is instead to infect those machines with a secondary way of, of operating and, and raise ourselves above the concept of direct operationality or patterns of such things. And so it's, it's, a, it's a jump into uh, almost uh, War of the Worlds kind of thing where uh, we can fight the aliens, we can shoot them with all the guns in the world, nothing happens, but a cold takes them down. It, the infection the, of something that can become its own self-replicating sort of pattern i think is a is a big push that they've been making mm, sort of like a self-overcoming uh scenario yeah and it's their their big push throughout this whole thing has been saying like look these are machines that create themselves this this world is you're surrounded by machines that are basically giving you reason to invest in the machine now if you were to go into this gigantic thing and say cool i want to change everything by obeying the rules of the machine that defeats the purpose. But instead, is there a way we can play with people at that moment of pre-conscious interaction? Is there a way we can change what they get invested in so that way they have a better understanding and are able to instead, in my mind, uh, how I read everything they do, is about uh, getting those larger investments and actually making them subordinate to the actual actions of desiring machines rather than making desiring, desiring machines subordinate to the large gregarious social machines and also maybe it's it's a uh, i'll try not to go too far but um you know it's a it's a contestation of philosophy because philosophy is like the this love of wisdom but they're proposing not into this book but elsewhere a geosophy would be a love of the earth a love of the movement of the earth so instead of like you know having a masturbatory moment over wisdom you're having a mastery, ma masturbatory movement over the processes of the earth. So instead of doing psychoanalysis that blocks some processes in, you know, in, uh, in respect to 
principles or like certain a certain type of wisdom what they're trying to do is to allow those processes to take place and push them so they can produce more and not according to a goal which is like found into a program but something that will just emerge and keep emerging you know they they change this 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 linearity of intent to uh, conclusion or solution by just opening up the process and letting things connect to one another in the sense that the earth is doing it. And just because I typed it in the chat, I just want to make sure I did mean unconscious, not pre-conscious. <sighs> I find the usage of these words very frustrating. So. It, it's tough because they're using a lot of like psychoanalytic language, right? But to, to build on Roger's point, they do kind of intimate something here, right? That, that I think goes to Muskie's, um, to answering Muskie's question, which is a good question. Uh, did it ever have, I'm sorry, and where do we even situate such and such a group? Did it ever have a revolutionary unconscious investments? The surrealist group, for example, with its fantastic subjugation, its narcissism, and its superego? It can happen that one lone man functions as a flow skiz, as a subject group, through a break with the subjugated group from which he excludes himself or is excluded. Arto the schizo. So for those of you who don't know, Arto couldn't... He was basically like uh, excluded from the, the surrealist um, artists, right? And part of it was in, in reference to schizophrenia, but like there was a lot of tension between that group and Arto. And so Arto, he has a whole project of things that he does in a, from not from his perspective, but from the perspective of him being excluded from this group. And it actually like it, in some ways it's led to like incredible art that doesn't get included in that group, right? But it also goes to serve you that in his exclusion, you see a subjugated group that he's being excluded from. And that way you see he's got, he, he is in and of itself in that exclusion, a line of flight. Well, I really appreciate the discussion from uh, everyone who's contributed. Uh, this, is, uh, this, is, this is going to be a question I think I will come back to and have to reflect on, but... Uh, I, I do I do see the answers that are there in the text that we're starting to uh, make clear for me. And to to get the last part of the paragraph too. Every time we wonder what when it started going bad, is it always It is always necessary to trace further back in time. Freud is the group superego, an Oedipalizing grandfather, establishing Oedipus as an interior limit, with all kinds of little narcissisms aroused. And Reich the marginal, plotting the tangent of deterritorialization, causing the flows of desire to circulate, smashing the limit. Nope, I turned a page too far. Smashing the limit, breaching the wall. So obviously, like we've you know we've talked about like how far Lacan goes, but it seems like right here they're looking at Reich as affecting a deterritorialization of the Freudian here. And actually, you know, perhaps doing something revolutionary. The task of schizoanalysis is therefore to reach the investments of unconscious desire of the social field insofar as they are differentiated from the pre-conscious investments of interest 
and insofar as they are not merely capable of counteracting them, but also of coexisting with them in opposite modes. Uh, I'm making a note that we are going to come back and discuss this sentence uh, for five or six hours straight. In the generation gap conflict, we hear old people reproach the young in the most malicious way for putting their desires, a car, credit, a loan, girl-boy relationships, ahead of their interests, work, savings, a good marriage. But what appears to other people as raw desire still contains complexes of desire and interest, and a mixture of forms of desire and of interest that are specifically reactionary and vaguely revolutionary. The situation is completely muddled. It seems that schizoanalysis can make use only of indices, the machinic indices, in order to discern, at the level of groups or individuals, the libidinal investments of the social field. Now, in this respect, it is sexuality that constitutes the indices, not that the revolutionary capacity can be evaluated in terms of the objects, the aims, or the sources of the sexual drives animating an individual or a group. Assuredly, perversions and even sexual emancipation give no privilege as long as sexuality remains confined within the framework of the dirty little secret. It is in vain that the secret is published, that one demands one's right to be heard. It can even be disinfected, treated, into a, treated in a psychoanalytic or scientific manner, yet thereby one stands a greater chance of killing desire or of inventing forms of liberation for it drearier than the most repressive person, as long as one has not succeeded in rescuing sexuality from the category of secrets, even if public, even if disinfected i.e. as long as it has not been rescued from the Oedipal narcissistic origin imposed on it as the lie under which it can merely become cynical, shameful, and mortified. It is a lie to claim to liberate sexuality and to demand its rights to objects, aims, and sources, all the while maintaining the corresponding flows within the limits of an Oedipal code, conflict, regression, resolution, sublimation of Oedipus, and while continuing to impose a familialist and masturbatory form or motivation on it that makes any perspective of liberation futile in advance. For example, no gay liberation movement is possible as long as homosexuality is caught up in relation of exclusive disjunction with heterosexuality, a relation that ascribes them both to a common Oedipal and castrating stock, charged with ensuring only their differentiation in two non-communicating series, instead of bringing to light their reciprocal inclusion and their transverse communication in the decoded flows of desire, included disjunctions, local connections, nomadic conjunctions. In short, sexual repression, more insistent than ever, will survive all the publications, demonstrations, emancipations, and protests concerning the liberty of sexual objects, sources, and names, as long as sexuality is kept, consciously or not, within narcissistic, Oedipal, and castrating coordinates that are enough to ensure the triumph of the most rigorous censors, the great gentleman mentioned by Lawrence. Uh, we're going to break this into two pieces. Uh, I would like to have a conversation around the first sentence, but we will hold on that for a moment. I think it's worth us really diving into, um, before we do that, their entire example, which is, I think, a great example of sexuality and how it has become to be defined essentially as uh, normative or non-normative. Uh, 
heterosexuality being the norm and homosexuality exists only as opposition to that or in the same sort of stanza despite being something that is more uh, welcome and open now it just exists sort of on the same sort of setup uh, i'd love to have anyone give discussion or thoughts on this I think the distinction between um, normative and non-normative is is the operative thing, right? So for their context, it makes sense to talk about a gay liberation movement because they're writing in the 1970s and they don't have the context that we have now of like these gay rights and gay marriage laws becoming um, sort of embodied in the laws that, you know, run our country. I guess. Uh, I think the problem that they're getting at is that this liberation movement didn't address the problem of a socius that's, you know, there to quash desiring production. It, and I, I, I know Roger is just biting at the, chomping at the bit to, to jump in here <laughs> and say something, something along the lines of, uh, in my work, uh, along those lines, when I work with people who have uh, what we call disabilities, but we basically put them in a place where we're saying, cool, here is how the city works. Now we have to add a couple things in order to make sure that these people who we want to include into that story uh, uh, can, can walk around or be involved in the city without realizing that there is actually an entire breadth of people who are completely non-normative and that we're building the city to the exclusion of them without even being aware of it. Is that close, Roger? Uh, if I was about to say something into those lines, you know, you, you kind of caught my logic. So, you know, it's, uh, I, I'm happy that, you know, I'm not that crazy when I say stuff like this. But I would, I would say something about, you know, I was about to say something about the new gender movements now. Because uh, what they're talking about is the sexual orientation. And I was like, oh, does it apply to new, the new gender movements? And I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure because, you know, and when it comes down into identity, uh, I, I don't know if this, this, this thing still old with um, groups and movements surrounding sexuality. It's interesting. It's an interesting question. And I'm, I'm not sure because I was going to bring up like the idea of a turf, right. Or, or someone who is, you know, a lesbian feminist, but, doesn't want to have anything to do with trans women. Um, and that sort of gets at the problem, the ambivalence behind the, you have these increased protections legally, but your investment is still reactionary and on the unconscious level. So you're invested in associates as a means to um, quash other people's desiring production. It's, 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 and I used turf as an example for this yesterday. It's a perfect example because when you talk to TERFs and when you kind of confront them on what their, what their beliefs are, they genuinely, genuinely are shocked because in their heart of hearts, they come from a revolutionary place. And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm part of the standard old culture. Are you nuts? I, I'm, I'm feminist. I deeply believe in women's rights. They, holy, they're shocked. Uh, J.K. Rowling absolutely is a good example of this just utterly shocked yet when we talk to him it's like hey by the way your your entire actual investment is in this larger field it turf is a perfect example i'm going to continually use that example of this yeah 
because the turf is linked to uh, the equivalent of the gay liberation movement um, because it's it's been it, they were not turfs before you know they were radical feminists in the 70s and the 80s so it's the same kind of movement and you know now they're being anachronic when it comes down to the question of gender because you know they're more interested in sexual orientation than gender in itself because they're going to say it's a man so it keeps you know it's still a man so it's it keeps being this this molar form into our you know molecular becomings and you know they're they're just going to prey on us so like they they keep this this same kind of relationship to um the 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 molar you know cis heterosexual man and they're just transposing it into the you know the trans people so that's why i ask like I, I was thinking about like moving this uh, point in criticism towards the gender movements, but I don't think they apply. But if you link it to the turf, it does apply. Yeah, I think I think anachronic is a is a really good word for the turf, and especially the fact that I like that you pointed out the context of like a turf, you know, coming up in the uh, protests and stuff of the era that this book is from and now 50 some odd years later we're seeing the sort of uh reactionary investments kind of come come into visibility um the interesting question you got out uh, though about the modern uh gender movements is 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 tough for me because i want to i want to bring up uh like a like non-binary identities as maybe a way to like you know as a line of escape out of you know a certain kind of gender ideology, a certain sort of uh, jouissance, right? A certain sort of like fulfillment in making a new kind of identity or, or, or the process of, of interacting with someone's body in a way that isn't defined by these binarist ideas about gender. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure if uh, I can go so far down that line without a little preparation and thought put into it beforehand. Yeah, that's why I said that, because I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go in with this. And I was just like, oh, maybe not, because <laughs> I think the queer movement, uh, you know, prior to the, you know, this non-binary new vocabulary that is out there, the the queer moment is it, it's a rhizomatic movement. You know, it's something that wants to connect, that doesn't want to refer to the molar aggregates and just let, you know, desire run wild into, you know, the different uh different connections and those connections are not something that is uh planned in advance they just happen you know and people are just going to identify and uh they're just going to act the way they want to act and stuff so that that was this this revolutionary movement uh, moment of the queer uh, movement now it's a little bit more touchy because you know it's been um in frame into the symbolic more now there's categories there's a whole taxonomy so it's be, it's going back into the molar. The the gender moment that right now, um, it's 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 becoming problematic in the sense that um, what it what it sought it's uh, it escapes from it and because it's it reinscribes itself into the system at this moment. Mm. You know, for example, you take Facebook with the seventy two possibilities of gender of like categorizing yourself you're still being cast back into a full categorization in regard again to the cis heterosexual white male yeah i think that's a good point it, i think there might be 
the potential for those revolutionary lines of escape in being non-binary that that I talked about, even if there's also those reactionary investments that you bring up about about the you know marking yourself in such and such a way on Facebook so that you know all the cisgender people know for sure you're non-binary and you're defined in relation to them. Yeah, that's that's something that is uh, that's difficult to think at this moment because it's like supercharged ethically and morally. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. It's difficult to think, but but I, I, I the reason I don't know something it doesn't it doesn't seem like it should be a big deal to be like certain pro progresses. There's ambivalent effects. You know, like if you end up with making gay gay marriage legal, that's great. But if you end up recapitulating an Oedipal structure that, you know, is ultimately kind of regressive and upholds all these other problems and that are connected in this book to capitalism and oppression and imperialism, it's like, well, that's ambivalent. Oh, totally. And, you know, we kept the ritual of marriage, you know, property and exchange of rings and stuff like this. So it is <laughs> being cast back into the... The full adipal of the daddy offering his uh, his daughter and stuff. So like you know, it's just done into a different with with different uh, categories ascribed to bodies. I'm reminded of the um, John Waters had a quote on this that I watched. Oh, I must have been years ago now, where he said something like, "You know, the cool part of being gay used to be that you didn't have to get married." <laughs> I agree with that, and you know, it's uh, it's it's a it's a point sometimes that I bring that. Uh, what they consider here to be the gay liberation movement, but in French, it's the uh, the homosexual front. Um, see, there's a little change into the language here. Uh, was the potential, it was potentially charged of destroying the institution of marriage, the institution of exchanging and giving property uh, over the descendants. And, you know, the, the rearticulation of the alliance uh, so the possibility was there, but because marriage is linked to different laws that allows you, uh, you know, economically to do things. Um, so it was sought after by the people because they said, we don't want to be ostracizers, like cast out of the system because we live our sexuality in a different way. So they had to go back into the system and re, um, be recuperated or you know be recast within the molar arrangement so that's always a question you know like you want to be revolutionary but there's there's still advantages within the system so there's always like a, a limit break that you're like all right so like we destroy everything or we try to include ourselves into the social body well and there's a there's almost a counterpoint that comes with that of or hundreds of years, uh, especially in America, definitely for the last like 50 years, uh, homosexuals were seen as debasing marriage and we're gonna bring the end to marriage and horses would be eating each other's in the field and all of that. But um, what ended up sort of happening is on that side of things, Americans were like, oh, they want to, and oh, you wanna get married? You wanna invest in the same, oh, you're not gonna destroy marriage, you're gonna help strengthen it. And there's an almost, uh, our our deep investment in the larger body that we kind of i don't know it's how it's uh, gays got the chance to marry because they were able to do that they were able to here's our investment in the larger story oh you want to be like us come on in the oedipal family is a big tent now 
Oh, that's, but it's you queer people. You're weird. I don't like you. The gays, that's great. I'm reminded very much uh, in your example of the quote we just read about how the capitalist doesn't labor for, you know, his own enjoyment or his children's enjoyment. He labors for the immortality of the system. And it, I, I don't want to say that, well, actually I do. I think it, it's an interesting idea to think that even the, the conservative Christians who fought against uh, all of that gay marriage for so long, for so long, so hard. And I lived in Colorado and if I got to have family on both sides of the issue. It was fascinating. But now it's a non-issue because ultimately, and gay people are getting married, they're paying taxes, they're getting, they're getting divorced, they're having the same life that the rest of us get to lead. That, that's fine. Uh, but now trans people and queer people are the ones that we've got to really watch for. So now we've just got to figure out how to bring queer and trans people into marriage, and then we can just make sure everyone is oedipalized, right? Is that... Yeah, yeah, totally. And uh, I don't know if you people, uh, I, I tend to say guys, and I really need to, to stop saying this. Um, just I say it all the time, and I'm sorry. I say it um, all the time. <laughs> we're, we're old. But uh, Just Beer, KPR, um, came with the concept of homo-nationalism, which is uh, a type of association between nationalist uh, ideology and the rights of LGBT groups. So in, in the protection, like it's the LGBT groups are being seen, you know, they're being the castaways and the people we don't want. But at the same time, because of uh, the progressive uh, aspect of our countries, our, civiliza our, our civilization as a whole um, protects the rights of those minorities, they're being used as a justification to actually uh, condemn the others you know, see them as barbarian and stuff. So there's always um, the molecular becoming, the molecular line of flights when it's being taken back by the molar system, you know, it's like the, the, the gay people and the queer, they're being, you know, recasted within the state. Even the most reactionary part of the state will use them as a tool to continue as regressive force. I, I would add also this, this would include even... Um, and when I say the term, uh, this would include good racists. Uh, when I, I mean that they're skilled, not good people. Like there's a skill level to racism that varies in lots of places. America, we have very skilled racists. And the way that they often talk about uh, blacks or Mexicans or whoever, they talk gross across all of it. But then you say, well, yeah, but John down the street, John Brown, he's a black guy. You're friends with him. Oh, he's one of the good ones. And general, what that's meant in the past is like, well, I'm able to make an exception. But what it means in this context, uh, and I think works very well, is, well, actually, no. He's one of the good ones in the sense that he supports the same power structures that I do. And he is part of that Oedipalized reality that I, that institution that I am part of. Now, the others, the ones that aren't, the ones that want to tear apart my world and destroy it, those are the bastards. Um... It's a really interesting take and way to think through that for what's happening right now. Because this is, uh, Dave Rubin earlier today had a 100,000 uh, person stream about the war on Christmas, which this feels like, <sighs> it's a whole thing. But, um, but I want to go back to the first line, which I like. The task of schizoanalysis is therefore to reach the investments of unconscious desire of the social field, 
insofar as they are differentiated from the pre-conscious investments of interest, and insofar as they are not merely capable of counteracting them, but also of coexisting with them in opposite modes. Really like that uh, very specific thing that we're going after. Not so much the investments of unconscious desire of the social field, uh, of, of the pre-conscious investments of interest, but we're going after the unconscious desires in the social field. The, the, that setup, rather than that sort of secondary, deeper, uh, feeling like impossible to reach uh, uh, pre-conscious investments. So if someone could dig into that a little bit for me. I, I think they're moving to how is it that things can be can seem inclusive but actually be exclusive, right? It's like this is like Foucault's point with humanism, right? It sounds inclusive, but it turns out to be exclusive. In the same way, something like the uh, the gay liberation movement, in terms of exclusive disjunctions, right? This allows for like so we've talked about like codification and like functionality, right? There's a certain sense in which like uh, aspects of sexuality, objects, body parts, organs, and the like. There's a certain which a certain way in which that unconsciously gets coded, um, in in terms of a double bind, right? So the easy way to say it is: well, you're either homosexual, or you're heterosexual, you you know. And in that sense, we know if you're for the cause or not the cause, right? Or you get a sense of, well, I'm heterosexual, but I'm for the cause. Like, there's a weird way in which exclusions um, sort of work here. And in that sense, like, you know, like, I think about, like, the Malcolm X movie where the, uh, the white person asked Malcolm X, like, well, how do I help the revolution? He's like, well, you can't. And, you know, that's a powerful scene for a lot of reasons. Um, but right here where I think they're getting at in terms of, like, coexisting in that is in the sense of, like, in terms of becomings, in terms of codification and territorialities, right? In the terms of how that how these syntheses are operating in connection with not only the socius but the body without organs, how those fall back on production itself. I think what they're getting at is like it's really not going to be about the, the homosexual or the heterosexual use. It's going to be about the inclusive disjunctions, the way in which these body parts, these objects and that, the way in which this can um, unconsciously occur, the, the desiring production can happen and take a bit of those structures with them into deterritorialization, such that like a, a new territories are possible. So it's, it's a different way of thinking about it in terms of like, how do you create like exclusive disjunctions, right? And, and in this sense, in the inclusive disjunctions, um, it's not about counteracting, it's about coexisting with opposite modes, as they say, or it's not just about counteracting, I should say. Love it. Uh, any last thoughts on this paragraph or the reading today? I'm going to begin closing out uh, the reading because we're about to hit two hours. I want to make sure everyone gets to get back to their real lives uh, and their molar investments. Their real life. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, just to read a comment from Angus, which I liked. The heterogeneous, uh, heterogeneousness. Heterogeneous is also generally non-productive expenditure. 
you could see how there could be a homogenous point of view from which these minoritarian groups are defined by the fact they are non-productive. It's a really... Uh, so yeah, I think that's right. It's spot you know, on. It's spot on. Non yeah, non-productive in the production of a plus value that cannot be reinvested into the capitalist system or the liberal economy. Because uh, what we've seen through the book is that uh, capitalism works like this, you know, it needs you to produce something that is going to be subtracted from your work and be invested into this full body and, you know, uh, we'll, we'll give some results. So I think that the way you put it is perfect. Uh, Julia asked, uh, Jack, because uh, you said it, uh, I'm a little confused about the point with Malcolm X saying a white person couldn't help the revolution or a straight person couldn't advance gay liberation. Very likely misunderstanding something. Feel like there are some ways in which allyship can be helpful. I think. Uh, let me take a crack at it, Jack. Uh, I, I, I don't think it's necessarily saying you can't be an ally. It's that uh, the revolutionary capacity within the black community uh, needs to be of a certain kind and a certain style, and it can't be helped from outside because, basically, and and Malcolm talked a lot about this. Um, if they have to reach out to a white man for help. It's already lost. Like it, it, that that act in itself reinforces the problem, and well, that's basically what the losing water are saying here. Actually, mm -hmm. I'm giving it, just giving you like a real world example. I was asked to uh, talk about an article um, that I've written about the struggle of somebody trying to get out of the institution and change the way people with disabilities are receiving services. So I've been contacted by the radio. They're like, oh, do you want to do this talk? And I'm like, no. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to contact the person, you know, and that person is going to talk. I'm not there to take their place. I'm not there to help, you know, I'm, I'm supporting their struggle by intensifying their voices, not putting my interest or like, you know, having my ego in the way. So that's the whole difference of being, you know, a true ally to a minority group that is trying to get out there and do their own revolution or, you know, satisfying my will of being useful. Well, and I would add one of the things you can do is you can look back at uh, in the U.S. as a very simple example, uh, who are seen as the heroes of any of these movements forward for any of these minorities. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. is seen as the man who pushed for it. Uh, he is not the man who is seen as passing the laws. It's still, you're still privileging the rich white man, uh, LBJ or JFK as actually, oh, he actually helped. Uh, the poor black man couldn't do it on his own. Uh, uh, no one talks about uh, the, the gay activists, queer activists who worked their asses off to fight for the chant right to get married, whatever that may be. Uh, however you feel, may feel about that, um, the reality is we talk about the Supreme Court decision and Obama and Biden pushing for it is almost fucking laughable as a thing. So the way we talk about these movements throughout history is also normalized, oedipalized, castrated, and narcissistic as well, because that's how we integrate these things into the larger way our desiring machines are continually fucking crushed. I don't just to give a little point on my example, um, it's, it's people on the left that are, you know, asking me 
to give this paternalistic account of a, a struggle that is not mine. So, you know, it's even the left is being cast back into this Oedipal kind of thing and, you know, seeing the expert as the good father or, you know, it's so, so we're really stuck with that kind of logic. All right. Any last comments, quotes, anything? Any dirty little secret? Any dirty secrets. Well, it's, it's, it's going to start getting into sex and playing with how that works within libidinal economies and within production because they've already started that this this last paragraph dove pretty deeply into about how desire functions and how we need to be looking at sex and sexual examples and they get very much deeper into that i know it's a i mean it's part of the war on christmas that we at the christian delusian center for uh ted cruz have been working for years to try to fight and we will understand the enemy of these leftist marxist quatarians and we will we will defend our Jesus. Um, ugh. Well, I just vomited that. So um, with that, I am going to end up uh, closing out because that's a wonderful note to end it on. Thank you guys for joining us. As always, you can find us on Twitter, uh, DNGQC, at DNGQC. Uh, if you want to support us, support us on Patreon, DGQC on Patreon. Uh, otherwise... Uh, thank all of you for coming and we are uh, going to see you next Monday. Monday.